Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And yes, we're back again with Beethoven's Middle Period. And we'll be taking a look today at a truly delightful piano sonata. But more on that later. First, some history. mentioned in our last episode, Beethoven's compositional periods are very loosely defined, and this middle period generally lives between the years of about 1800 to 1815. Many of Beethoven's most beloved works are from this period. Now, it's also known as the Heroic Period, and that's partly because of one of the first works we'll see come out of this is the Eroica, or Heroic, Third Symphony. But how did we get here? Well, you'll recall in our last episode, we left a bit of a cliffhanger with the mention of Beethoven's impending deafness. He had first noticed he was losing his hearing actually around 1797, and from there, year to year, it only worsened. For several years, Beethoven was hopeful that a treatment could be found to restore his fading sense. At the very start of his middle period, a doctor advised him to take a spa retreat in the town of Heiligenstadt. Beethoven was hopeful this would do the trick, but sadly, it did not. As you can imagine, he experienced deep depression due to this hearing loss, and he realized this would negatively impact all of his performance opportunities. We can see just how this affected him in a letter he wrote to his two brothers, now known as the Heiligenstadt Testament. In this letter, Beethoven expressed how his deafness had been contributing to his notoriously short temper. He was very flustered that he was losing any sense, and especially one that, quote, ought to be more perfect in me than others, a sense which I once possessed the highest perfection. He also expressed that his deafness made him feel secluded, even in the presence of others. He hints that his despair was so great that he had considered committing suicide. However, he did not because, quote, it seemed impossible to leave the world until I had brought forth all that I felt was within me. So obviously, he still had a pretty high opinion of himself. And though just having proclaimed his will to live, Beethoven also goes on in this letter to describe that he understands death could be impending because he still didn't know what was actually causing his deafness could be a serious illness. And he actually provides a bit of a will, leaving his wealth and important instruments all to his brothers and wishing that the splitting up of his belongings should not cause strife between them. So, with this letter, Beethoven had essentially resigned himself to composing what he could and giving up the performance circuit. The music of Beethoven's middle period has a much more experimental flair to it than that of the early period, and this is partly thanks to Beethoven's loss of hearing. Of course, he had an idea of what things sounded like, but a lot of it was increasingly in his imagination. This period is also more personal. It describes overcoming great adversary much like Beethoven himself felt he was doing, rather than just catering to public appeal. 
Now we are, of course, also marching ever closer to the official romantic period here. Remember, we're still kind of in a transition between classical and romantic. As we've described before, though, the romantics really loved a good programmatic work. And Beethoven's symphonies in this period in particular start bordering on being programmatic. For example, the Eroica being about heroic deeds, and the Symphony No. 5 having the recurring fate motif. And of course, Symphony No. 6 is the pastoral, and definitely falls into the category of programmatic because of the whole idea of a storm passing through a meadow as a complete scene. His symphony also began to push the bounds of the genre. They became longer and more elaborate than anything his classical idols and teachers had written. He began to really explore his themes in the development sections, with the expositions becoming quite short. Sometimes, Beethoven even eliminated the slower middle movements completely in favor of all movements being somewhat upbeat. During this period, Beethoven mastered the piano concerto, with his most famous being the number five, Emperor. Also during this time, Beethoven produced a lot of concert overtures, which are slightly programmatic works that could have been preludes for stage works, but they weren't. He did in fact try his hand at a full-on stage work, and his only opera that he produced was Fidelio. It was a very difficult work for him. He made several revisions over several years, and in fact there are three versions of the overture alone. Though it was the only opera that Beethoven composed, it was still very well received, and a young Mahler even commented that it was THE opera. Though his output was prolific, and he still found favorable audiences, Beethoven's temper during this period did him no favors. He would often lash out at other musicians and students, and some refused to work with him. In 1808, he apparently got in such a fight over preparations for a benefit concert that he threatened to leave Vienna for good. Luckily, his wealthy patrons banded together to provide him with an extra allowance if he would just please stay in the city and provide them with pretty music. This allowance was then paid to him each year until his death. So even in his worsening condition, Beethoven was never at risk of becoming a starving artist. So that's it for now with the history. We'll pick up with the finale of Beethoven's life in our next episode. And for now, on to this week's piece. So this week we'll be looking at the Piano Sonata Number no. 21, the so-called Waldstein Sonata, as it was dedicated to one of Beethoven's earliest and most generous patrons, Count Ferdinand Ernst Gabriel von Waldstein. The Count was very wealthy, at first, and he unfortunately tended to spend his money on superfluous things. For example, he financed his own private military, and apparently the only time they were ever called into any kind of action was to put out a fire at a bakery. That is hysterical. <laughs> Gotta save those buns. Yes, you do. <laughs> he was, of course, a longtime patron of Beethoven, which did turn out to be beneficial to Beethoven at the time, and of course to the billions of people who have ever heard Beethoven's music during and after his life. So we'll hope you agree that this was, in fact, not a superfluous use of funds. I certainly do. You think it was superfluous? No, I agree it was not. Oh, <laughs> good. 
Well, regardless, the Count did eventually die in poverty from his lack of finances in 1823. This sonata was written in 1804, so relatively early in Beethoven's new middle period. But as we'll describe, this goes to show how quick the switch was from Beethoven's early style to this new experimentalism. Some people have even considered the execution of this piece to be more like a symphony rather than just a sonata. Perhaps it could be orchestrated. The first movement, as you might expect, is sonata form. As always. However, the second movement is marked as introduzion, and it's actually quite short and free-flowing, and it's played ataka to the third movement, which is a rondo. Now, shall we investigate? I think we shall. The first movement opens with repeated eighth note C major chords, and eventually we get some flowing sixteenth notes over these chords. It's a bit of a first theme, but not terribly melodic. This is all then repeated, but instead of just the 8th note chords, Beethoven ups the intensity by having 16th notes waving back and forth on those same chord tones. And this time, the upper 16th notes are reflected in the bass as those 16th notes continue as well. effect that Beethoven has near the end of this little section is to have those upper and lower voices move inward towards each other and then back out in a way. Our second theme is highly contrasting to the first, as it is melodic, almost like a choral setting. Beethoven also decorates it here with a triplet treatment. There are also two little bridge sections Beethoven utilizes throughout the movement as well. The first is all sporadic leaping eighth notes. second is slow arpeggios with gentle moving chords in the bass. And now we are in the development. We start out with the same repeated eighth notes, but this time we have modulated to F major. And of note, we have modulated down, not up, meaning that Beethoven is really utilizing those low, rumbling bass notes of the piano. As we get into the development, we immediately start to see just how Beethoven's development sections got to be as long as they are. He really takes one idea and just follows through with it. For example, here he is working with the single little downward 16th note line from the beginning, but he has basically two separate phrases 
each with a completely different sequence of modulations each time on the same small motif. take the triplets from the second theme, but they get spun into madness as they modulate through the diminished chords. It really sounds like the flow of this once sweet melody is falling apart at the seams. Beethoven plays with this concept 12 times. To keep it from getting too boring every few modulations, he speeds up the transitions, takes a few measures off here and there, but it's very slow progress compared to how the classical era composers and Beethoven himself used to work. By the end of all that, Beethoven has taken us once again to the low end of the keyboard, but he starts shooting little upward 16th notes or triplet 16th, almost like little fireworks, until we finally get another instance of the upper and lower voices rushing inward towards each other to get us into the recapitulation. But once we get here, after our initial first theme is presented exactly as we first saw it, the end of the phrase ends very differently on an A flat instead of a G. And Beethoven actually gives us a little mini development on this simple downward eighth note arpeggio. Classic Beethoven, really elaborating on anything and everything. Our second theme in the recapitulation is presented in a magnificent A major, and we first had heard it in E major, but this time it sounds so well flushed out because Beethoven is actually using fully four-voiced chords in both hands as opposed to just two or three notes per hand like the first time we heard it. This is just going to show that it probably wouldn't be too hard to actually orchestrate this work. Then Beethoven takes a break from writing new material for a while. It's all pretty standard, if only just for a moment. But following this, we get what sounds like more development, but it's not. Now we're into coda territory, baby. So here's some new coda material. Before the end, we get one more iteration of the second theme. Beethoven builds up the drama getting to the true finale with fermatas. But surely we must be getting close, unless... Nope! 
Here we are with a final romp with the first theme back in tonic C major and hearty five to one perfect cadence to cap off the movement. And now on to the very short introduzione second movement. It starts off very meandering. And while that did sound very introduction-like, Beethoven does actually write us a real melody in the second phrase, and it's almost aria-like in nature. Beethoven does a cool thing that makes it sound like there are actually four hands on the piano instead of just two. He starts with the right hand in a little upward line that after a few notes is joined by the left hand playing the same upward line. Then, while the left hand is still playing, the right hand jumps up an octave and starts over, and then while that's still happening, the left hand jumps down an octave for the next time to join in. So four iterations, all overlapping. Just because this is an unassuming little introduction doesn't mean it can't have some good sequences. In fact, that might be more reason for it to sequence. Here, the bass and treble are sequencing in opposite directions, so by the end we have very different timbres on the piano. get a little diminished action. Before getting to some sweet sounding and again sparsely written chords. And then we jump to the rondo. Though it is marked as allegretto, it doesn't sound rushed. There are 16th notes in the background just quietly going about their business, while the upper line is mostly quarter note based. Now what's fun about this writing for the pianist is that the 16th notes are in the bass and the quarter notes are in the treble, but Beethoven has written that the hands are crossed. Now the only real reason for this is that there's a very low C heard here at the end of the phrase. This is actually played by the left hand. So if that hand had already been occupied by those bass 16th notes, there's no way it could have actually gotten down to this note on time. 
For the second phase of this Rondo theme, Beethoven does untwist the hands, because right now we need the right hand to play octaves in the treble. Logistically and ergonomically, there wouldn't be a great way for the left hand to play these notes. Now for a real challenge. The left hand plays sixteenths, the right hand is playing a trill, but Beethoven wants a melody to be played over this. What to do but have the right hand continue the trill while also playing that sweet, gentle melody. Now it might not seem difficult, but dear listener, Please try to quickly wiggle your thumb and pointer finger back and forth, and then tap out quarter note melodies with your pinky on that same hand. Can you do it? I know. I cannot. <laughs> yes, I definitely, definitely cannot. <laughs> the second part of our rondo is much angrier sounding. There are now octave eighth notes stomping around in the bass, and octave sixteenth notes skipping around in the treble. does resolve with a little 16th note ditty. It sounds as though it could have inspired Brahms's Hungarian dances, and Brahms of course was very influenced by Beethoven, so maybe... As we pointed out many times in our previous Beethoven episode, he also likes to show contrast through dynamics. In this movement in particular, we get a lot of jump scare type fortissimo chords, followed by sweet chord chorales. Speaking of dynamics, when the rondo comes back this time, Beethoven marks semper pianissimo. You better not play loud. Beethoven is watching. No, he's decomposing. <laughs> and then we get that frustrating trill again. And Beethoven does give us permission to crescendo, and now we get to hammer out that melody at fortissimo. In our next theme, we actually change key to C minor. It has a more frantic feel at first, because of 16th notes alternating between the bass and the treble. They never play at the same time, and then we get triplet 16ths in the bass, which just makes the notes rush by. but Beethoven actually ends this section with a pretty strong cadence, almost a full stop, before launching back into the rondo theme. Now, this section is very transitional sounding. There's not much in the way of melody, but there is a lot in the way of harmony. So we start on D flat major. Who does that? Beethoven. 
Uh, we then moved to A flat major, then E flat minor, then B flat major, uh, then F minor, and then finally C major. So did you pick up the pattern? My pattern recognition's a little weak. You should educate me. <laughs> okay, well, it sounds super fancy, but it's just the circle of fifths with a few minor chords put in instead of major. After toying around with arpeggios, we get a small homage to the first movement with downward arpeggio inversions, much like what we heard at the end of the first movement's first theme. After another playthrough of the Rondo theme, here are some diminished chords. Whatever could come next, Beethoven. <laughs> Prestissimo. So our previously stately and beautiful Rondo theme now takes on a much more capricious attitude. We're getting some fun offbeat eighth notes that actually take this quasi-capriccio into Tarantella territory. Out of all this chaos, Beethoven does give us some background triplets and things seem to ease up just a little bit. But at the end, it's full steam ahead. We get eighth notes embellishments to the main theme, and then a big grand rush up to the top. classic 5 to 1 cadence. It's just 1, 1, 1, all in different inversions, all the way to the end. So there's a little look at Beethoven's middle period with one of my favorite piano sonatas from that middle period. I think it's very interesting, even now, early in that middle period, we can see how he's already transitioning into the more through-composed style that romantics become famous for. And as we'll see next week, he really pushes the limits, and it's partly because of his hearing loss, but I promise we will get into that more in our next episode. And if you're excited for our next episode, go ahead and drop us a follow on Spotify or wherever you download your podcast, as well as a review if you appreciate what you've heard. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Piano Sonata Number 21 was performed by Peter Bradley Fulgoni. You can find The Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.